right, welcome everybody to day three of our 2021 live stream extravaganza. Uh, this morning, we are joined by uh, Ross Shane and our internal expert, Matt Bach. Uh, and we're going to be talking about sort of the state of the industry in VFX and MoGraph uh, world. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a pretty good day. I think it's, it's going to be awesome. Come on. Thank you for joining us today, Ross. Um, I like to always start off just in case anybody doesn't already know. Go ahead and give yourself a little bit of an intro and background about who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, guys, thanks a lot for uh, having me on your your stream. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, at Force Vex, we're, we're big fans of the stuff that you guys do, Puget. And uh, we really love, like, the, you know, all the testing that and all the information that you provide as a, you know, uh, systems provider and everything. It's, it's really cool stuff. So uh, thank thanks. You. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's all that guy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, Matt. Well, you do a great job. You know, we we I've even referenced Puget uh, as like for other partners who are in the, you know doing hardware saying you should check out what these guys are doing. You know, because they're really providing the customer base with the great information. So very cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's why we try to make it public and free. Like it's useful. It's good information. Well, yeah. So uh, my name's Ross. Um, you know, I I am uh, chief product officer at Borsvex, um, focusing really on uh, mostly on Mocha and on Silhouette and optics. But as you guys probably know, we also make plugins for for editing. You know, so we have Continuum and Sapphire, very uh, famous products as well for um, for for video editing, motion graphics, and VFX. Uh, I live in New York State. And I've been in the industry, God, almost 25 years. Um, I studied filmmaking when I was young and uh, had a really interesting experience, you know, as a as a young coming up into the uh, industry because I I would, you know, I studied film on 16 millimeter and, uh, you know, actually cutting film on a steam flatbed. Yeah, oh, wow. with, <laughs> with a razor blade and a hot splice and everything. Cool. And uh, that was, and we, we had, you know, I, I worked on an optical printer and was really into like uh, very, you know, scratching on film, tracing film, doing uh, very physical things with the film itself. That was sort of how I personally got into visual effects and graphics was uh, I was just very interested in uh, animation and avant-garde <laughs> filmmaking and exploring different techniques while I was in film school. And just right around the same time as like desktop computers were coming out, you know, this is like the early nineties. So, um, it, cool. we actually got an Amiga, uh, which is a very early, um, graphics computer. Uh, and there's an application called the video toaster that would run on Amiga, which you could do cheesy wipes and graphics you, and you could program titles and do all kinds of different things. And that was my sort of first experience getting into computer graphics hmm. and after that in the early 90s you know all of a sudden avid came out with nonlinear editing and uh you know that was a huge obviously a huge tipping point in the industry around the same yeah. time obviously adobe and you know 3d applications are coming out you know all, all sort of converging at the same time and the computers were getting more affordable um so I got really immersed in, in early, you know, early graphics and editing systems before Adobe even bought uh, After Effects. It was called Cosa. Those are Ooh. early days. So um, just really was come really a long ways. <laughs> <laughs> I was always really yeah. interested in exploring, uh, yeah. you know, visual effects, software, computer graphics, CGI, and 
ended up working at Avid uh, as a product specialist for mid nineties, you know, for about five years. Mm. Um, so had really interesting uh, experience in the beginning of, of uh, you know, computer-based editing and graphics. Wow. Yeah. So I just, I'm really excited for this chat because I think you can provide a lot of context about like, in a lot of ways, how good we have it these days, <laughs> <laughs> like how easy some of these things are, how, how many of these like auto buttons, you know, can save so much time. Cause I, I really think a lot of the things that are going on right now, um, AI, not as much. Well, there's some things like content to wear fill and after effects, like that's an AI based thing that, Oh my goodness, that saves so much time. You know, like the, that stupid Starbucks cup in Game of Thrones. Content aware Phil could just fix that in like a matter of minutes. Yeah, I, like I, that. I can definitely t- talk to that as far as someone who paid my dues because yeah. back in the day, you know, that kind of work would be done on a flame system, for example, which mm-hmm. might be, uh, would run on a silicon graphics machine, which was just the computer alone was, you know, uh, close to a hundred thousand dollar piece of hardware, you know? Um, and yeah, the work was very, very specialized and very, uh, you know, there was early tracking tools and, and some rotoscoping tools, but it was also very manual. So the, you know, if that game of Thrones shot, for example, say there was a, it's very typical really, in, especially in commercials, uh, yeah. would, would be that, uh, a producer would come into my room and cause I did work on, on a lot of commercials and say, Hey, you know, how long, how long would it take you to remove this object from this, you know, from the scene? <laughs> now, of course, the camera's moving, lighting is changing, actors are in front yeah. of the object. And you'd have to really yeah. kind of quickly develop the skills to analyze the shot and say, that might take me uh, two days. Come back in two days, I'll have it done for you. And, they, you know, that's kind of the how that work would, would happen. So, yeah, these days there's so much automation, um, like you say, whether it's AI or just the tools have gotten better and better that the yeah. artists can really handle the volume of shots. You know, it's just changed significantly. Yeah. You, you know, okay. So before the stream, we were kind of talking about, hey, some of the things we might talk about. So I'm going to throw you a curveball here and throw you something totally different than what we talked about before yeah, the stream. Sure. <laughs> um, so talking about like how accessible these tools are, um, the one thing that I think is really interesting these days is the low barrier to entry, um, especially in like VFX and motion graphics. I mean, the big the big gorilla is After Effects, and you know that that does cost money. I mean, if you have a student, there's student discounts if you're a student, uh, but for your normal, I think it's like two hundred and forty something dollars a year if you just basically want After Effects. So that's not nothing. But there's also like uh, DaVinci Resolve. You know, the free edition has Fusion built into it that can do some of this stuff. That's more VFX focused than than motion graphics, but. Uh, the accessibility, I think, how how people can start is, I think, one of the big things that in recent years has um, really impacted the industry. Is, is that something you guys uh, see a lot of at Boris Effects? You know, people who are coming in, just getting started, and like, I just, I just can you talk to that at, at all? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, there was a time where the not the tools, not the you know, cameras computers mm-hmm. software there was a there was a, a a barrier to to get into the field you know especially like i was saying in film you actually had you know that was there was time that there just wasn't uh accessible you know uh equipment uh mm-hmm. obviously video cameras 
came out that went through their whole thing. And now we're at the point, obviously with phones, you know, anyone can shoot, shoot very high quality footage these days. Right. Right. But yeah, on, on the software side, it's become incredibly accessible, uh, uh, accessible and not only through things like Adobe or, or Resolve, like you say, is free. But, you know, think of things like open source initiatives like uh, Blender, for example. You know, right. you have a very, very mature three CGI animation application that is basically free. Uh, that's really cool. There's something called GIMP, you know, which is like sort of like a Photoshop alternative. Uh, there's just, just so much out there right now that um, a student could, you know, have an, and do very, very low budget work you know what's well, kind of also cool is just to, to think about how the tools sort of run through all these different software so you know you could start with something like blender and then you could graduate to or go you know you might go on to learn cinema 4d and then maya you know as far as the cgi world so a lot of the core concepts tools are foundations that you can build on yeah, no, that, that's absolutely true. You're right. And having that low barrier to entry just means that, like, you know, a high school kid can get into it. Like, and it's, yeah. it's amazing. And the other one I forgot about totally is Unreal, Unreal Engine. Like, that, that's been huge recently. And technically, you, you have to pay if you're using Unreal, but only if you're selling games even. I, I don't even know if you're using it for, like, doing an animated film or VFX. I think it's just free, right? Yeah, it's it's quite amazing that you could download Unreal for free. You can, you know, they've, they've added so many uh, tools for uh, cinematic, you know, animation, something called Sequencer, where you can actually just render out, like, a, a sequence out of uh, Unreal. And, yeah, if you're not selling it, if you're just making creative content, you know, you can use it absolutely free and yeah. they do a great job too of uh, education on the unreal site. There's excellent training materials. Yeah. I would just add, I would add on, on our side for Boris Fex, you know, we really believe in the education initiatives. So like mm -hmm. um, if you're a, a college student with a, a photo ID, all you have to do is, uh, you know, prove you're a college student and we will give you a free license of all our tools for the year. Oh, and really? We're, we've put a lot of initiatives into education in the past two years. Um, now we have lots, of, you know, hundreds of videos online on the Boris Fex website. That's, I, I didn't realize you did, did that for students because, I mean, that that's amazing because, I mean, not not to like, you know, shill from Boris Fex or anything, but I mean, you guys have some really good products that can like save people a lot of time. Um, I, you know, okay. So if we're talking about state of the industry, like what, what are the some kind of the things that force effects you know specifically have, have been kind of working on in recent years I, I know you guys did a whole bunch of updates recently to do like the mfr stuff for after effects you know that's a little bit more on the like, back end technical side uh but as far as like what you're allowing people to do is there uh any like big things that, you know recently or upcoming that you've been you know personally excited over yeah, there's there's so many. I mean, we have a kind of interesting place in the industry because we're a plug-in company and we also make mm -hmm. some standalone tools as well. But we don't really um, – it's not like we're really competing with Adobe or competing with Avid or, or Blackmagic. We really um, – we have this sort of area space in the industry where we're like, there are things that we do really w well and we've kind of carved out that area. So it's like, um, whether it's rotoscoping, motion tracking, lighting effects, like in Sapphire, um, Continuum has lots of edit tools that like an editor might need, but the host application doesn't have. So mm -hmm. as a, as this sort of like smaller company within the ecosphere of the, 
the post-production industry, we, we really carve out like our own little niche uh, and, and mm -hmm. sort of as a specialty tool company in a sense. Um, and I could talk to about a different, a bunch of different things. Uh, one, one area that's near and dear to my heart is, uh, motion tracking and rotoscoping. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a huge part of all post-production. Um, and it's become something that's not just, it's not just in the high end, you know, it used to be that a high end visual effects related, you know, oriented film might have, uh, tracking in, you know, rotoscoping in it, but now everything that you see, I mean, whether it's a commercial music video, even on Instagram videos, you know, there's a lot of visual effects happening. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and behind all that is tracking, which is following pixels across the screen and segmenting or rotoscoping or masking, whatever you want to call it. And we've developed a lot of tools that really shine in this area. Um, you know, specifically like Mocha and silhouette mm -hmm. and an area that, one thing that, you know, as far as like in the last year that I'm excited about is we create a relationship with Netflix and we announced okay. that um, Netflix ha has a uh, the post uh, technology alliance. Um, hmm. Actually, it used to be called the, po the post technology. Now it's called the production technology alliance. Uh. But essentially, Netflix um, sort of vets and works with the various um, industry manufacturers on their tools itself and approves it. And it it was an interesting process. We, you know, we applied to get into it and, uh, you know, they accepted Silhouette as the first tool um, in there for as this first specific Roto tool. And, you know, Silhouette is this kind of unsung hero of uh, visual effects. People might not, you know. When I say silhouette, you might not, uh, it might not, you might not have ever used it. Maybe you've heard of it, but it, it's really used on almost every feature film, like every Marvel film, every ILM film. Um, mm. Behind the scenes, you know, where you, it, there's lots of people using silhouette for for rotoscoping and for painting, fixing things. So so much yeah. so much uh, when we you know fix it in post kind of idea of like you say whether it's uh, removing that mug from the shot in the game of thrones or whether it's uh you know digital makeup and all that kind of stuff um silhouette is this like tool that's used in, in so many different uh you know productions and so i've been really excited about working with the silhouette team internally and also working with netflix because they've been great about telling us what kinds how how they'd like to see us develop the product for their productions right so I've got a so taking moving back to like more of the industry at large. You know, talk about fix it in post. I feel like we've kind of been going back and forth on things. Like uh, before, you know, a long time ago, you didn't want to fix things in post because it was so expensive. And then uh, we got to the point where it became a lot easier, so we started doing more things. Uh, and now we're starting to like with like the Mandalorian LED walls and you know virtual production and stuff. It's it's easier to get things right in camera, uh, often virtual camera. Uh, but even on those ones, it seems like we still have to, you know, fix things afterwards. Um, I, I think you were talking about this before the show. I've heard this in other sessions that I've been on as well. It's like the Mandalorian is like a big, like, you know, proof of concept kind of thing for LED walls and stuff. Yet they had to rotoscope out like a lot of it <laughs> and, and, and change things. Right. Yeah. Is that... 
Yeah, that's bit. Yeah, we've worked with some of the companies that have done some of the rotoscoping, you know, on the Mandalorian and uh, other virtual productions. And yeah, virtual production is really interesting because, like you say, it's like it's going back to the idea of practical effects are all on set. I, I kind of think it's interesting when you think about like the history of film. You think, mm-hmm. you know, originally they shot, um, you know, original, very early films. It was like kind of emulating stages, right, where the camera was be fixed and you have your actors on stage and the camera didn't really move that much. And then they got into this point where like they, they wanted to replace the background. So they came up with like ideas of like rear projection, right? You know, that mm-hmm. old classic, like someone's uh, driving. Hey, can you guys, uh, I think my, my, Looks like you're camera, my camera. Video, video might have freaked out a little. All right, let yeah. me see if I can stop it and start it. Okay. Oh. Okay, it's still frozen. I'm going to do one other thing. No technology. Yeah, hey, you know, you, you, you when we do, when you mess with technology, you get technical problems. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I'm there it goes. There. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Sorry about that. Uh, yeah. So we're talking about uh, uh, virtual production, and I was just saying, mm-hmm. saying it's kind of cool and interesting to think about, like the history of, uh, you know, if you think of like rear projection, where they would have literally have a background, and you have the guy mm-hmm. driving, and they have this background that's projected <laughs> by film, and then the next iteration of that was like green screen, where we would take away, you know, software could take away the background and replace the background. Mm-hmm. And now we're going yeah. full cycle where we're putting the putting the physical background back in, but on a screen, you know, a, a, now a LED screen. Right. Uh, it's very interesting. But um, what I've heard and some of the people who are working on these uh, uh, projects, there can be a lot of uh, complex technical issues with working in the virtual productions. One of the issues is um, the, the moraying on the screen could be mm. a real problem depending on the camera um angles and lighting so that's one issue that potentially has to be fixed in post you have a lot of seams so the the uh the screens themselves are not you know it's not fully immersive or 360 so there are seams and um beyond that you're so much of this content is mixing cgi with live action right so yeah the the amazing thing is you might be able to get the um real-time lighting you know so if it's like uh uh, Mando in the cockpit and going into hyperspace, you get this real time lighting, right? But obviously, the CGI characters that are in the screen and the elements that are inter- integrated in the screen that need to be uh, integrated, that's going to have motion tracking, have rotoscoping to kind of sell the seamless composite. So, yeah, I mean, the nature of all this stuff is, like you say, there's still quite a lot of um, manual work, rotoscoping, and, and that kind of thing behind the scenes happening. So, you know, it's almost like with virtual production, you know, whether you're doing LED screens or, you know, I know a lot of it is still just like on green screens and you just have a, um, they're trying to tie a physical camera into a virtual space. You know, there's all that kind of stuff too, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more uh uh, I don't know, in some other stream. But um, the thing that I think is really interesting is that with virtual production, it's not taking away very much as far as like the work that's being done in post, really, because there's still all the rotoscoping, there's still all the color correction, there's still all the other stuff. Like, yeah, some things are easier, but other things, it just introduces new challenges. It almost seems like what it's doing is going to take away some of the work as far as like 
I, I mean, pre and, and production level things, you know, finding a, a set, um, you know, getting everything all cleaned up, uh, you know, timing things, because now you can do a sunset picture or a sunset, you know, thing at any time of the day over and over and over. Uh, and you, you don't have to like be the right at sunset. Uh, so a lot of those things, it seems like is where it's going to help. Uh, the other thing I think someone pointed out yesterday is that you can go back and you know, do a reshoot. You know, the, the scene is just virtual. So you can, if you need to redo something, you can just go and redo it. That's a huge, huge thing. Cause so much of, um, yeah, production, there's always like, what if we could go back and do this, right? You know, we have to, mm -hmm whether it's a continuity error or so many different um, uh, variables where, where, yeah, that would make sense to, to go back and reshoot it. So like you say, you could just dial up that set, those props, mm -hmm. everything's going to come right back. So, yeah, I think it, that's very interesting to think about, like the people on a movie set who deal with props, deal with all that kind of location stuff and carpentry and set painting mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Very different. On the, at the same time, it's opening up a lot of great new job kind of titles and different roles because mm -hmm. now you just need more people who can use Unreal and can do, uh, you know, uh, CGI modeling and texturing and lighting and that kind of thing. So it, it's actually very positive for, for the uh, VFX artists and, and graphics side of the industry. I think you mentioned going doing reshoots and stuff. Um, one of the I think it's kind of similar. One of the things that, that kind of blew my mind recently was um, the Netflix. I think Netflix produced the movie Army of the Dead recently, um, and the actress Tig Tig Notaro completely like they pasted her in after the fact. Um, they they completely wiped out the original actor and and kind of pasted her in afterwards and. I'm I'm not That's super so picky. much work. <laughs> Look, I'm not super. When I first watched it, I didn't notice. Having right. now been told that, I can kind of tell. You know, the the lighting's kind of funny, or like certain things just aren't quite right. But I'm I'm blown away. It it was just basically just her all by herself on like a big green nothing, and it worked pretty well. I thought, like I said, if if somebody hadn't said it, you probably wouldn't notice that well. And that's amazing yeah from my perspective it, it, there's so much work that you would never think of as done in in post you know, or cgi you know that we we kind of luckily or just because the customers that we work with you know we get some uh behind the scenes of some of this footage it's really that's something i really enjoy about my career and sort of the position i'm in is to see the behind the scenes um it, really amazing stuff you know is happening on all kinds of films and I mean, I was shocked when I heard that, like David Fincher, you know, famous director, how, how in or, or Michelle Gondry, some of these directors, how in tune they are with the uh, the tools and the post production, uh, you know, what is available to them, that they would literally, I call it like a Frankensteining uh, performances together, even like on a, a dramatic scene where there's no visual effects, where they would literally have the eye to understand, hey, I really like the way this actor is performing in this scene, but the body language is different in another scene. Like they, some of the, the things that's happening in visual effect, visual effects based storytelling, really, really yeah. amazing. 
makes me wonder at what point are uh, are we going to start doing uh, basically live photogrammetry on everything, you know, having a, just a bunch of cameras so you can make a 3D model of everything so you can just, like, grab that person out and not even have to, like, really rotoscope. Like, it's a 3D model, essentially. That's, that's a lot of data. Like, I know we're nowhere near that, <laughs> but that would be pretty darn neat if you could just do that. You'd have your high-quality video from the front, but then you actually have the you know, a full model, like, oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of initiatives happening right now. And there's like, you know, uh, Microsoft, you know, uh, mixed reality studios and and lots of different things, both on the high end and the low end uh, that has dramatically changed in the last couple of years. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely very interesting to think about that and sort of the, the virtual human stuff that's happening. Yeah. Well, and there's there's all this stuff from uh, Nvidia with the the Omniverse uh, things that they've been working on. Um, some of these topics are probably better for because at one we're doing an AI one, right? Sure. Houston and AI, yeah. so might leave some mm-hmm. of those deeper AI Ooh. stuff for for that one. But I mean, it, it is kind of interesting, um, though. It like vir- you're saying, like kind of virtual people or um, or in that's or meta humans, right? Like with Unreal. Um, we we are getting. I think we might be a little closer than Matt. You might think to almost fully fully digital actors. Um, I know they tried to do that. Like I think it was in twenty twelve or something. Or the, that first Final Fantasy movie way back. Mm-hmm. It was all it was all CG people. But uh, when you have when you have things like um, in the Avengers Endgame where like the time suits are CG. They they pasted those yeah, in no after idea. the fact. Yeah, you couldn't tell. But then you also start you start rubbing up on things like deep fakes or um, the the how, what do they call it when they they make kind of an older actor look younger and and those sorts of combinations of technologies. There's I feel like we might not be so far off as to having you know Samuel Jackson forever kind of thing. <laughs> be, yeah, no, yeah. it's it's definitely really interesting. I mean. Uh, Although, our, our, you know, our current shipping tools are not using AI, you know, in, in our many of our tools are actually used quite a lot in the de-aging, you know, de-aging, uh, you know, some of the deep fakes and AI uh, solutions are really, really incredible, but don't they don't it's really allow the, right. the artist to kind of finesse or, or make creative uh-huh. decisions sort of like you can kind of go down a road where like either, either it works or it doesn't mm-hmm. um so tools like mocha and silhouette are used quite a bit because um the artists are doing very intricate uh rotoscoping essentially to have really finite control because you might say hey you know more more eye bags or more less wrinkles or this particular feature um and that's work that is traditionally has been done in CGI, but with mm-hmm. the deep fakes or with some of our tools, like our new power mesh tool, which is like a mesh tracking tool for that can track skin. That's a cool one. I like it's that really one. cool because <laughs> it allows an artist who might not have the access to 3D or the time or a project that might not have the time to go to mm-hmm. a full 3D CGI solution, you know. Uh, they can do that kind of intricate uh, face reconstruction or, or digital makeup kind of work. So yeah, it's pretty yeah. fun stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things you were saying there was is basically that AI. I feel like is a huge buzzword right now. Like I know even like Adobe calls some things AI, and it's like is that really AI? Uh, mm-hmm. But like 
it, it's a big buzzword, but it's not always the right solution. AI is the solution for some things, but other things, like you said, um, like it's just better to use, I wouldn't call it traditional methods, but like we know what has to be done and you have you know a lot of code that does it and it does it really, really well. Like AI is not just the end all be all. Uh, you know, of everything. It's certainly not yet. I mean, there's super exciting stuff that's happened and still happening with, you know, like, for example, you know, Adobe has the Roto Brush, right? Or Resolve Ooh, has yeah. a, a, their own version of, uh, uh, you know, r- rotoscoping. I, I forget what it's called, the Resolve Is one. Is it but, Magic but, Mask? Yeah, maybe it's Magic <laughs> Mask. And, and uh, you know, Autodesk Flame has uh, a version of this. And that's all, it's, it's really cool stuff. <laughs> Uh, and again, when it works, it, it's great. And it might be, mm-hmm. it might save you time, even just for previs, you know, because you, you want to see your composite, you want to see your actor who's not shot on a green screen interacting with other elements. So being able to get a very quick rough mat, that's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, but if you're watching a Netflix show and you pause, you would never see some roto edge, right? You would never, yeah. you might actually. You <laughs> yeah, it's a little you will. But that's the quality that that we expect as viewers at that at this mm-hmm. point. Like you, you're, you're talking about the Avengers, you, you would some of the matting that you see in the old Star Wars, you know, original Star Wars films, that doesn't pass our, our viewer our expectations these days. Mm-hmm. And th- this is why, um, especially in the rotoscoping, the AI solutions haven't been that successful, is because. Um, there are there are things like I can even see like Matt on your screen like you're you have a black background behind you but mm-hmm. uh, you know done the, and your your shirt has some black elements and there's no way the computer could be be able to detect really yeah, you try to get this yeah right exactly here. and mm-hmm. I you know or I think of like uh, you know I, I used to always use this example like you have uh, Elvis with black hair on a black background like where is the hairline <laughs> start in the background. And these are kind well, of just hair that, itself, like Houston's beard, like getting all those little hairs, like that's terrible. Yeah, and these that. are things as humans that we are, have very complex understanding of. Even if we can't see it, we kind of into it where mm-hmm. that edge should be, where the computer, the AI approach, based on training sets and lots of different variables, it can get close, but it's still not perfect. And, and, and the other thing that's also very interesting is it might do a proper guess on one frame, right? But mm-hmm. holding that temporal consistency on the edges has been an area in AI that hasn't been really solved yet. So again, that's why a tool, you know, some tools that have um, splines, right? Hard, ed- defined edges um, that can kind of animate across time. That's still sort of like the end all way to, to properly segment things across time right now. So yeah, so oh, the yeah, AI stuff totally is really cool. We're, we're, we've actually been looking at it, had some discussions even this morning about it. Hey. Um, you know, we have some R&D happening and we definitely hope to productize some of these ideas in the future. <laughs> but my goal is someone who sort of specializes in like um, designing tools for as certain kinds of users, the users ultimately want to need control. So I, w- mm-hmm, I would hate sure. to, I would hate to go down a path where we say, "Hey, this tool solves your problem, and that's it." Where you can't actually get in there and touch it, fix it, 
correct it, you know, because ultimately like the artist has to make sort of the final decision where that edge really lies. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's kind of the 80% solution, right? If it can, right. if it can cut out, if it can get you almost there, like almost good enough, and then you can tweak it. That's yeah, I, I agree. I think that's the right angle to take because until it, until it has a lot more time to kind of grow and evolve, you wouldn't want to just put it all on that and say, okay, well, let's hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, we already have an excellent solution with like planar tracking, which is one of our core, you know, areas of expertise where we can, we can track lots of different objects and then we can link splines to those edges. And we've, over time, we've done things like uh, edge snapping and magnetic masks and some really cool stuff Mm -hmm. there. So I think like in the future, kind of, Adding in an AI component would be really, really cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I like seeing where, so, where that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you mentioned previs a minute ago. Um, that's another area that I think is really interesting with VFX recently. Um, we talked about Unreal being used in that for production, uh, but I've also seen a lot of people using Unreal for previs. Like, mm-hmm. since you can just build a scene and then have you know characters and a virtual camera, you can actually go through and instead of you know storyboarding things out, you know, with drawings or or whatever out, I'm seeing more and more people doing almost like one to one like. They, they make the movie in Unreal first, and then they actually go out and film it because they can do things like, where do we want the camera? Where do we want those actors to be to come in? You know, is this shot kind of shot going to work? Um, I know that's not something directly to Boris effects, but is that something you also th- see is like becoming more as like higher quality previs before even a shot goes on? Like the quality is just getting better. Well, I think the the nature of the rendering engines have just gotten so great, you know, with speed and, you know, real-time ray tracing and everything. uh, It's pretty amazing because this is stuff that used to take quite a long time, you know, and if you didn't have the power uh, on your local computer, you might be uploading that to some service, you know, rendering service, um, Mm -hmm. you know, is how some of our customers are building their own render farms for this kind of stuff. And yeah, for, for a a CGI artist just to be able to get the quality, you know, in real time it, it, and play with the lighting. That's, that, that's really amazing. You know, as you say, there's like lots of scouting, location scouting mm-hmm. and lots of things that are happening um, that don't really touch us as much. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's pretty exciting to think about not only for previs, but for motion graphics in general, you know, like mm-hmm. complex motion graphics have always been something that takes a long time to render. Right. And Using yeah. some of these ideas, tools, techniques uh, to get real-time interaction. Even, even it's almost like you could even think of pre pre-vising your motion graphics, right? Um, huh. Lots of really interesting things that you could uh, do with some of these uh, with the game engines, not only Unreal but Unity as well. Yeah, and you know, at the same time, like you mentioned, how all these engines are, are getting so much faster. I mean, the, one of the ones we've been dealing with recently is the new multi-frame rendering in After Effects. You know, makes After Effects way faster, huge yeah. performance gains. Um, but at the same time, we're also kind of going against everything else, which is like uh, resolutions are going up. Um, not everyone's just working in HD anymore or 720p. Now it's 4K is becoming more of a norm. A lot of uh, stuff, especially things that are going to Netflix, don't they require like 6K or 8K now? I forget what it is. Yeah, I mean, almost everything is, you know, being produced in 4K as far as post in, in 4K. But I think there is some, you know, that 
the actual you know a- acquisition is is even higher. So wow. yeah, yeah. Cool. so so we're definitely like the yeah. tools are getting faster and better, but we're also putting more on their plate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's the yeah. thing. Is as things improve, we tend to fill in those those spaces with just cooler, better, bigger, flashier. Yeah, the, the the speeds have been uh, great. You know, it's happening. You know, we, uh, as far as to touch on the MFR. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, most people probably know. If you don't know that, you know, Adobe, it's in beta right now, the After Effects MFR, which is multi-frame re- rendering. And, you know, in, in a very basic way to think about it, so many people customers are always like how you know i bought this expensive computer how come how come it's not taking advantage of my heart you know this piece of software is not taking advantage of my my new computer and yeah so adobe they they did pretty amazing work you know uh you know they basically rewrote after effects in in a core way to to much better take advantage of um you know multiple cpus and as a partner we work closely with adobe and they let us know this was coming quite a long time ago um so i'm really happy to report that like right now our our products they support mfr <laughs> you know so Mo- mocha pro uh, sapphire and continuum the versions that you could download today they actually you know they actually support the the adobe uh beta and as soon as uh, Adobe ships that public um, version of After Effects. You know we're we're ready to go, and the speeds. I actually was, I was just looking, the speeds that we're getting are pretty staggering. Um, just to give yeah. you an example, you know we have uh, Continuum, which is our you know our, our one of our flagship uh, plugin collections that would uh, uh, runs in a, a Premiere and After Effects. Inside After Effects, we um, we have a plugin called uh, Beauty Studio, which is for skin smoothing. Okay. Very, very, especially for reality TV and kind of hitting that, uh, you just mentioned the high resolutions and when you're, you know, documentary, uh, you know, we're showing, you know, you're shooting someone at very high resolution, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, wrinkles and pores and all, just very basic stuff. You know, almost everything has a little bit of uh, beauty work or, uh, skin smoothing these days. Uh, so beauty studio, we're actually, yeah, it's like, what was taking uh, seven minutes to render on the same exact hardware with just with MFR enabled is taking like three minutes to render. Mm-hmm. So staggering, staggering uh, speed increases. And we're, we're seeing that on a, a bunch of our different products. Yeah, we actually, uh, so we did a big project recently. We looked at tons of different CPUs and stuff. And Boris FX was, uh, we did some spot checks um, with, uh, yeah, it was Beauty Studio, uh, BCC Light. I'm actually not. Some of these I'm not familiar with. I, I think there were projects that you guys actually gave us, sure. and we're like, yeah, okay, great. Uh, and yeah, I, I, a lot of them. It was like a two x uh, performance increase. I mean, like, and that's great. Like, it is so rare that there's a software update, and hey, now everything is two times faster. Um, and some of the things, like some very specialty things, we saw like specific projects. I think the highest we saw was four and a half, almost five times faster. Um, and that's still real world. If you go unreal world, like we know this one effect is going to be really good. So let's apply it 20 times. Like you, you can get amazing. Like I think the highest technically anyone saw was like 50 times faster, but like that's not real anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but still, 
the fact that in the real world, anywhere from two to four times faster is like that's going to change Ooh. like how people work in, in After Effects. Absolutely, and as, as someone who's you know used After Effects for over twenty years, uh, just the fact that all the you know even scrubbing scrubbing through the timeline and mm -hmm. that if you you know the way an artist works is like you think about it you stop you might say hey let me let me try this effect let me try this effect the the fact that when you're not doing anything it's constantly caching that's yeah. that alone is huge and then they also have the new um i forget what they call it but underneath the uh after effects uh, composition window you have a little the render timeline like the render stats mm -hmm. i mean the, yeah the composition profiler yeah so that you can yeah. just drop an effect any effect on there, whether it's a third party or uh, you know a native effect, and it will tell you exactly how long that effect is going to take per frame to render. That is a yeah. really great tool, uh, especially for like a motion graphics artist who builds toolkits. You know, they might be providing like you might be building a a, a graphic look for a network. You know, and part of their concern is like how fast they can recreate it quickly. Right. So to be able to optimize your composition based on that uh, profile, it's very, very cool. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And then that's the kind of things like there's, there, there are things that are like workflow based or, or tools that can do a very specific thing. Like, like you mentioned, like your, your book complainer tracker and stuff like that saves so much time. It is like revolutionary for people doing that thing. But this is more of a, Across the board, anyone who's using After Effects is going to make their their workflow faster. Which um, we've talked to people. It's, I mean, it's time savings, but it's also a like you can stay in your like your 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 creative space. Like if when your computer is waiting on you, you're not waiting on your computer. You like you you get bumped out of that creative flow a lot less often, which which I think is is huge in, in these kind of things. Like you're saying, like apply this effect or that effect. Being able to do it and have it like show faster is it, it's just a huge deal. Yeah, get, getting that interactivity results in real time to be creative that's mm -hmm. it's it's huge. And you know, in my experience, this you know a long time ago, this was only work you could really do on a flame, and that's why flames were successful. Uh, was because they yeah. were just so fast and that you could work with a client in the same room and that, you know, especially the advertising clients and you could show them things in, in very close to real time, make creative decisions together. And now, now we're like after effects is just as fast, which is really amazing to think about. Yeah. Which, which does bring you all the, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Houston. I think we might be heading in the same direction, but um, with, with these sorts of, changes in, in with hardware, everything getting faster and faster. Is there more pressure to to get things done faster or or have like the I guess the work timelines still the same, you just can do more within that same amount of time? Yeah, I don't know if I could really answer that because again, I'm so focused on the software side of things sure. right now. Whereas maybe earlier in my career I was probably delivering projects, working closer with clients. Mm -hmm. But um yeah, I mean, the services are expected to happen very quickly. And, you know, we have customers who are that whole sort of like following the sun kind of idea where they're delivering services around the world. A lot of the studios have outposts that can kind of do that. So overnight, you know, you have artists working on your roto in, in, in India or something like that or working on your visual effects. So definitely time is, you know, 
time is turnaround is always going to be, you know, (laughs) can never Mm -hmm. be fast enough. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if the turnaround time is faster, um, hopefully you're still being paid the same amount. And so if this just lets you turn around jobs faster, hopefully that means you can take on more work. And with everything we were talking about before with, you know, previs and, you know, virtual production now, like adding new things. Uh, the other thing you could do that I, I think a lot of people are recommending right now is if you have downtime, take the time to uh, go through some of those Unreal tutorials. I think that's one of the biggest things a lot of people can do right now is get familiar with Unreal um, because I, I do feel like more and more stuff is going to be going that direction. Um, there's still a lot of things you can't do Unreal. You're not going to be doing tracking. You're not going to be doing, you know, you know, cleaning up of film and, you know, that kind of things. Uh, but all of this work that's going into virtual production, I think, is a big area where the industry as a whole, that's going to become a new, like, subset, you know, of uh, the work that people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really exciting area of the industry. Um, you know, I, I also think about, like, the like you say, you know, there's certain things that Unreal can't do or, or has, mm-hmm. you know, hasn't done yet. And so, but I think to, to be up on the tool and maybe incorporate it into your workflow in a way that maybe it wasn't even designed, I think is really interesting. <laughs> like to be, to use Unreal to render elements and then composite them in, you know, in After Effects or in Nuke, combine them with, uh, with effects, lighting, relighting effects or like Sapphire Continuum. Really, really interesting stuff that you could do to, you know, to really augment your, you know, I think this this session sort of has a VFX and motion graphics to, just to touch on the graphics. I, I, I think it's kind of exciting what you could potentially be doing with Unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll mention this too here that if, if anyone's attending Adobe Max, that we partnered with uh, AMD in a session that's going to be um, done next week where an artist, you guys might have heard of him. I think you might have worked with him is uh, Jonathan Win- Winbush. He's been doing a lot. Mm-hmm. Great guy. And he's been doing a lot with Unreal for motion graphics, which is, you know, teaching people how to use Unreal for, for, you know, to augment their After Effects or their Cinema 4D work. And we're doing a session with him, uh, with AMD and Vorspex, kind of showing how um, motion graphics can take advantage of Unreal Engine. Yeah, I'm already signed up for that session, so oh, I'll cool. be there. <laughs> yeah, the other day I went through and like, I'm going to go through and put together my calendar for Adobe Max because it's tricky, uh, for it? anyone who's not sure like or not aware, Adobe Max is free again this year. So if you have any time, you might as well register. And, you know, there's some great sessions in there. Um, not many on Unreal, but there's a ton yeah. in there for After Effects and, um, I mean, anything Adobe related. Um, and there's a lot of good crossover ones. Um, I know there's like After Effects for video editors or Photoshop for After Effects users. You know, a lot of like you can tr- start to get kind of this cross because like you're saying, like it's about using the right tool. Um, and sometimes the tool that's right is not one you're familiar with or it's one that's not even made for it. Uh, remember, there was a session a couple of years ago when it was still in person. It was After Effects for photographers which was really weird because there's apparently just some things in After Effects that they can do easily that like Photoshop or Lightroom doesn't support. So sometimes you're using a tool in a weird way, but yeah, absolutely. In fact, like, you know, just from my experience, both, both as a, you know, visual effects artist and also a product designer, you know, we, we would use like Photoshop kind of for, for uh previs or for like storyboarding or for, you know, for, for pitching an idea to a client, you know, for, uh, 
a show open, you know, a lot of times that we would design, design that in Photoshop, but then there are certain things that you're, you know, Photoshop doesn't have. So sometimes we'd have to jump into After Effects because we do want to access like Sapphire lens flares, for example, or kind of, mm. we, we kind of want to create a storyboard that kind of, uh, it shows motion. So we might actually make a couple keyframes, you know, and after effects to, uh, sh- to show the client how this thing is going to move, even though we're actually not going to do it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to think about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I actually remember now it was a uh, keying, uh, green screen stuff. You yeah. can't do that in Photoshop. So people doing like product photography on a green screen, they bring it into after effects so they could key it out and then bring it back. So yeah, there, there's just, yeah, different tools for different jobs and everything. Um, That's cool. So it definitely feels to me like right now is almost like the golden age for like VFX and motion graphics because like the the tools are so accessible, the tools are getting so much better and just more and more like film commercials, uh, you know, are are just becoming just, just, I mean, I don't want to say fake, but they're not real. They're all digital. Um, So like, I don't really quite know where I'm going with this as far as like a question goes. This is more of a statement, but it seems like if someone is interested in VFX and motion graphics, now is really the time to get into it. Um, you know, as you coming from someone who's been in the industry for so long, are there any like um, you know things you you would want to tell someone who who's interested? You know, be, be it a high school kid or you know someone who's just like you know, you know, someone in his forties who wants to get into this stuff. Any just like words of advice? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I agree with what you're saying because we are. I mean, right now in the industry, I mean, especially even with like um, remote work and everything like that, like the yeah. need for visual effects artists. It's. Uh, Every company that I know is looking for artists, whether it's 2D artists, 3D artists, um, you know, uh, so there's a there's a huge demand for it because, like you say, I mean, almost all content, you know, not only video, you know, it's not just film or episodic TV. It's all moving video, right? Or even games for that matter. But, you know everyone's looking for uh, visual effects artists. So, so it's definitely a really good time uh, to get into it and kind of going back to what you said earlier too. It's like, there's so much accessible tools and, you know, um, as far as, you know, I do just earlier this week, I actually spoke to some students at a, a college and yeah, I mean, I would encourage people to start with the, the fundamentals and I think it can get, I think it's very easy at this day and age because there are so many one-click solutions. Uh, you know, there's so many. You can you can achieve a look very very easily, and so I mean, you, you just take something like color correction, or take something. You know, you can th- take any of the foundations: color correction, keying, tracking. Um, it's I think it's really important to kind of before you get into some of the automatic solutions to think, to learn the real core concepts, because the, again, those are concepts that will translate across, um, across different types of software. You know, uh, it will also translate across different roles in your career. So, you know, for example, you know, being able to, to cut masks and, and really understanding the core concepts of, of masking and rotoscoping and tracking, that's a, those, that's a, a foundational, um, area that you could take that and 
work as an assistant editor. You know, th there's need for that in editing. There's need for that in motion graphics. There's need for that in visual effects. So like focusing on core uh, fundamentals is al always like a really good way to go and try not to get too wrapped up in like the newest, glossiest, like, uh, you know, automated tool or, or look and feel because these things, you know, especially in like uh, motion graphics, sometimes these things become trends, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to get, go too far into like a trend and kind of like always focusing on the, the foundation is, is what I would recommend, you know, a young person start with. Um, and again, that, that could be applied across, you know, it's also like, what are you most interested in? If you want to be, if you want to work on Pixar films, then you need to, you know, it's things like, uh, you know, lighting or animating and, uh, you know, really going down into like very specific areas. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I, I tend to do a little bit more on, on film than VFX and motion graphics, so I'm a little bit deeper there. So usually my examples come from there. But uh, it's like uh, all, all these people selling uh, LUTs, you know, lookup tables to to make a you know, video look a certain way. And it seems like most people who do this stuff work professionally, they I don't want to say they scoff at those um, because they, they do still have their place. But usually if someone's learning, don't just buy one of those preset packs and apply it learn how to do it, you know, yourself, because uh, you can make all that stuff yourself. And so if you can do it yourself, then you understand why it's doing what it's doing. Um, you can make tweaks to it because, you know, things don't always work. You know, those one click auto buttons are not always going to work. So then you can actually make it work and, and you know, do what it needs to do. Yeah, color correction is perfect example because it's like, yeah, there's foundation, foundation uh, techniques to learn, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's to properly balance the shot or whether it's to kind of like, you know, uh, creatively color, color correct, color grade a shot. But yet mm -hmm. uh, learning the techniques will really, really help you, you know. You certainly, you know, I find like the LUTs and stuff like that. And we have a lot of looks across our product line as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, being able to understanding the core concepts, super important. Yeah. And, and again, those have absolutely their place. Um, but understanding how they work, uh, because a, a lot of them, like you have to do your, your color correction first before you can do the grade or else it's going to look different from shot to shot anyway. So using them as a way to learn is a great way because then you can normalize all your footage first and then you know slap these LUTs on to get it, you know, a specific look. And I mean that's just one example. You know, all, all this like automatic rotoscoping stuff, you know, that you know applies to being able to do it by hand sucks and it's terrible and it's awful, but it is a good skill uh, to have. Absolutely. I want to grab this question from Tim Schumann on YouTube. Um, he says, how excited are, uh, is everyone about the new M1 Max integrated GPU? I imagine it's going to have a huge impact on all things VFX work. And I'm curious, uh, I didn't follow real close the, the whole Apple announcement stuff, but just in general, the whole move to ARM and, and that sort of thing. I'm curious how that's really going to change things if if you have any insight there yeah so so um the majority of our products are actually supporting m1 you know but not all the hosts are you know <laughs> for yeah, example you know doesn't have native yeah. yeah 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 so like you know our standalone application like mocha you know that's running on the m1 and we've seen some nice speed increases there which is great um, but yeah, there's some hosts like Avid or, you know, they're not supporting, they're not even supporting in, in, uh, 
Rosetta yet, right? So um, mm. it's definitely, you know, it's tough to answer that question because, like, not all the hosts are there. Okay. But as far as the architecture itself goes, yeah, we see. I, I think that's really, you know, it's really great for Mac, the Mac world. You know, if you're a Mac user who's kind of been frustrated that Macs weren't keeping up on, with the some of the hardware on the Windows side, um, you know, that's a really nice thing. And uh, Apple showed, you know, new version of Final Cut very recently. Uh, I think actually yesterday or the day before. Yes. Um, but yeah, so it's really interesting stuff happening. You know, some really nice new features, you know, are, are trickling down and the sort of the, uh, the integration, the potential integration between your iPhone and your Mac laptop. I mean, that's very, very cool. You know, I think they showed something with like the, uh, the depth of field that, that, you know, from the, the new iPhones, the, uh, that feature is coming across the final cut. Kind of interesting. Cool. Um, and so maybe I'm not answering the question directly, but I, I think, you know, the M1 architecture for, for us is exciting. Um, our goal as a company is to support as many different operating systems and hardware setups as we can, because we do have customers who are working across, I mean, we have customers working at, on the very high end, you know, like on the Mandalorian uh, at ILM. And then we also have customers who are using our tools for um, for wedding videos. So it, and those customers have wildly different needs for hardware support. And, and you know, so it it is our, our goal to pretty much support the whole ecosystem. Right. Yeah. I'll also say for us, like, I mean, we're obviously very PC focused, like that's yeah. mostly all we do, but I still think the M1 and the M1 Max is good because I mean, competition benefits end users always. Um, and we, we saw that for a little while with AMD versus uh, Intel, you know, with CPUs and like that's been great competition. Like the amount of like CPU performance gains we've had in the last like three or four years is terrific. Um, and if we can add a third party to that, if we can add Apple to that, where now AMD and Intel and like NVIDIA, all those guys now have pressure from Apple. Oh, that's just good for everyone. So I'm excited about it. I mean, I, I think especially with the M1 Max, you know, I, I never believe first party performance claims ever, you know, whether it's <laughs> Apple, Intel, NVIDIA, whoever. So I would always wait for third for you know third party. Uh, but it looks promising and yeah, I'm excited for what it's gonna do for the industry as a whole. Um <laughs> Welcome, Chad. <laughs> hey, I first of all, I apologize. I apologize a hundred times over for being incredibly late. Okay. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I had a family thing after I had to take my car in. I completely spaced on it, so I'm in trouble in two places right now. That's oh. all right. So that's kind of sucky. But yeah, oh. I apologize, guys. I, I assume you guys were talking about the uh, the Apple stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, what's? Yeah, we're just touching on that. Matt, so I just like what you're, it's you're into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially since it's just a laptop still, mostly. We don't do laptops, so I can be extra excited about it. Uh, Once yeah, I bring it to the Mac I Pro, had... I might have to be a little more reserved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was kind of wondering what your guys' uh, take was on that and whether or not um, you guys were like, you know, are you cautious about what they're going to do with the Pro line? Or are you like, where, where's your guys' heads at with the Pro line? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, I, I think a lot of it is it's just different tools for different jobs. Uh, I mean, if, if you're someone who's you know, just doing video editing and like, especially if you want to use like Final Cut, great, it's going to be amazing. Uh, but there's still some areas where I feel 
PC is going to have an easy win. Uh, a lot of like the rendering stuff, you know, uh, I know I, th- I know they have like Redshift support uh, supposedly or, or coming, but still, you're not going to be able to compete with being able to have a workstation with like, you know, three NVIDIA high end GPUs and things. So it's all about yeah, just what you, you're doing. You can get them. It's right tools. Yeah. Luckily, we've actually been OK. Uh, no, you guys have been months, really good. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I'm, it's I'm, rare. <laughs> no, it's rad. Like, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, this uh, Mac Pro, this MacBook Pro and what that could mean for the Mac Pro. And, you know, I, I haven't. So my story is like I was on I've been on PC for a long time. And before that, like way back when I was on an SGI system, I had like a a Mac sitting off to the side to do like Photoshop and stuff like that. And I even kind of walked away from the iOS walled garden uh, a couple of years back and I got kind of sucked back into it just because I just wasn't liking what I was seeing from the Pixel line of phones at the time. So it kind of got me it got me back into iOS, which then got me back into Mac OS. And I just think it's just such a, it's a fantastic OS. Number one, like it, it, you can't really beat it as an OS. I think it looks beautiful. It functions great. It's, it's sort of like everything does what you expect it to do for the most part. Um, and I've always been a little heartbroken that I can't really use it for work. Right. Cause mm. what we do is like high end 3d high end, uh, stuff, high end rendering. So it's always been one of those things where, I'll always have like either uh, a, a MacBook Air off to the side or an iPad Pro off to the side. And I'm using that for kind of productivity type of stuff, nothing too crazy. But this idea of being able to use it potentially for work uh, is really exciting, at least even just for a mobile kind of like situation. And people are always like, people always ask me like, well, what do you, what do you suggest for a, for a laptop, like a 3D laptop and i said i'm like honestly like get a macbook air and get parsec and buy yourself a beefy machine from puget and just (laughs) just remote into it then you got the best of both worlds like as long as you have a good internet connection you're good yeah yeah well and the other thing with like the the mac pros once they bring it up uh, it's so hard to know how these things scale um like I, I know a lot of people like to them like it's supposed to be like i think four times the core count or something but that doesn't mean four times the performance i mean that's what we've been dealing with on the pc side for so long with, with like cpu core counts you know 16 cores versus eight often means anywhere from no performance difference to twice but it's anywhere in between and usually on the lower end um so we're just gonna have to kind of see how all that kind of stuff works and how it shakes out and again, like I was saying before, like competition is good for everyone. If, if Apple Absolutely. makes the PC side have to work harder, I, I feel like that's one of the reasons why Apple's having to do all this stuff is because they were falling so far behind on the performance side. And so they've gotten, they got kind of that kick in the pants so they have to do stuff. And so yeah, I, I think that's, sure. that's just always good. Yeah, they have a lot of customers sitting on old, old hardware. You know, I mean, we, we see it all the time. You know, we go into a, a broadcast site, you know, where you have... Uh, you know, a edit, hundred editing systems, you know, using either Avid or Premiere, or most of them actually have both, but, uh, you know, they're, they're using very old computer hardware. So yeah, yeah. they definitely need to do it, yeah. but $6,000 for a laptop. That sounds a little, that is, that but is that's all, I, I think I that's know. all storage. Right. It, it all depends kinda, on, you know, what you're doing and what you, yeah. your return on your investment is like yeah. for someone who's just going to be doing emails. No, that's a terrible price. If you're making money off of it, you know, you, you are doing things on set, um, yeah. you know, on location, you need something portable, 
that I mean, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's the you know, same. I always point really. out that I've got an M1, you know, the the M1 Air. Like, I love that thing. I'm not doing I, anything dude, heavy on it. Best laptop but, I've ever owned. Yeah, it's terrific. You know, one thing that we didn't really talk about, just, you know, it's kind of interesting in, in context to, to laptop, you know, pro using your laptop professionally mm -hmm. is just that so much of this work now is done over VM that, mm -hmm. you know, that the idea that you could have a, a lightweight, you know, workstation or laptop and be using cloud computing, it's a real reality in the industry. And, and the pandemic accelerated that greatly where so many of our customers are working from home you know, using VMware, um, you know, private, you know, lots of, of these big studios have set up their own, their own services. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's definitely really, really changed things, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing a number of our customers, they, because going up to something like, you know, Amazon Web Services, or, you know, whatever those ones, the problem with those is they're not the right hardware for the work. So you're paying more money than you would ideally be paying and, and some of those like it adds up fast like the costs if you're actually using it eight hours a day uh, so i know we have a number of customers who like yeah their, their staff all went to work from home and so but they got the exact same systems they would buy normally but they're just sitting in an office in one spot they install a remote desktop software or a, a hardware-based uh you know ipkvm solution and then yeah people can remote in and like it doesn't always work uh, i feel like with like vfx and motion graphics it can uh Film when you're doing like color work, eh, not quite as good, <laughs> uh, but that's a solution for a lot of things. Or especially if you're just doing like beefy renders, you don't even really need remote desktop, you know, solution. If you're using something like Octane Render, you're just setting it up as a render node and you just push it out and right. just let it do its thing. Yeah. I've, I've been hearing uh, companies that uh, don't necessarily want to deal with. Um, you know, the Amazon uh, virtual machine situation, but what they're doing is they're uh, doing a localized version of that, where like mm -hmm. maybe cool. they have some studio space and they get some machines and they have a uh, they have them all in one place. It's not necessarily a data center per se, but it's it's a place where they keep all these machines. And then they're allowed, they're, they're allowing their artists to parsec in, or I don't know if Teradici is still a thing anymore, but um, they're allowing them to do it that way where they can be way more controlled and also licensing and all that sort of thing becomes a little bit more manageable. So that's a kind of an interesting thing that we're seeing too. It also makes it easier on IT staffs. You know, it depends on totally the level or, you know, how many users you have and all that kind of stuff. But if it's right. just a bunch of systems in a rack, it's a lot easier for them to like, okay, we've got to swap you over to this machine because this one's giving problems. You just use this login instead. Um, or to do things like, you know, OS installs and software management and hardware management and all that kind of stuff is easier when everything is on one rack. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> or two God, racks, yeah. You know, whatever. Completely. Yeah. And somebody can go into a physical space at two in the morning and kick some machines in the butt to restart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, do, I do wonder how much, um, if, if we ever will get to a point where it's purely remote like that, where you'll just have almost... Um, Kind of like the way back where you just had a, a dumb terminal dumb in a sense, yeah, and and you're remote, you're remoting into some massive or like your corporate mainframe kind of a deal where that's where all the work is really being done, versus having a more either a local machine like they're right next to you or semi-local where it's not it's not 
you know, you're not renting space from Amazon, but maybe you are doing your own kind of internal company cloud, I guess. I wonder how much of that is going to shift remote in that way. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think some, uh, but uh, there's also such an advantage of anything you can do in person or like local is always going to be good. Well, I think one of the problems with a lot of this stuff is you want to work where your data is. Um, and if you have to push a bunch of data over the internet, especially in the US where our internet is frankly terrible for most people, um, and if you have to push all that, you know, especially in like film where you, you could have like two terabytes of stuff, like that's yeah. a nightmare. Um, doing like a, a render, like a 3D render, usually you actually don't have a lot of like actual data. So it's okay to push it. You know, if you're doing like an octane, octane render kind of thing, you don't actually have a lot of data. Uh, so we have a lot of data it. coming back. You have a lot of right? data coming back. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's really the issue. Like we've been remote for ten years, and we mm -hmm. actually went <laughs> against the grain. And we have a new studio here that I'm in right now, and it it largely became uh, an issue. Not necessarily like pulling like data. Like that wasn't really a huge issue for us. One of the big issues that we had was um, uh, when you start to have machines in your home such as the ones we got from, from Puget, which are fantastic machines, but these are like workstation class. Mm -hmm. uh, I would call them industrial equipment, <laughs> really, because they throw off a lot of heat and they throw off a lot of, they pull a lot of electricity. So what we were realizing is that it just became um, a bit of a burden on our employees to have to to keep those machines in, in their homes. And some people, you know, don't have extra rooms and things like that to put these things in. So that on top of the fact that, you know, we we needed a place to, to bring up new talent. I feel like I'm taking this in a different direction, but um, yeah, it, it became less about the data, which is definitely an issue for us too, because one of the things that we, we've been on Google Workspace and doing everything through Google Drive file stream as a company so we're pushing and pulling lots of files around and getting back to the work from home thing that was also an issue too because a lot of us you know just have home internet right and we don't have uh gig and and yes yeah, it's, it's spotty at best it's expensive all that sort of thing and when somebody uh on the project you're working on kicks off a render and they're rendering like maybe you know three to five hundred you know, 4K EXR files, and all of a sudden everybody's computers are like syncing all night, like taking up all this bandwidth that they might not even hit that file uh, at all. They might not ever need it. Somebody on the team might just be, you know, aware of it. But yeah, these are all issues that are just not really talked about that much, I feel like. It's, it's, it's all really interesting to me to see how other people are solving these problems. Yeah, I mean, I, I think on the, the VFX side, like I was saying, like, I think the pandemic kind of accelerated the plans of a lot of companies who might have had uh, some VM solution, but they weren't really using it across the entire, you know, uh, enterprise. But now, you know, I think it forced a lot of companies to get into that very quickly. So, I mean, we, we definitely have, you know, major customers who are, their artists are still working at home now, you know, they're using Nuke. And maybe they're not editors, so they don't need, they're not, they need to play a half hour, you know, a 4K, play it back in real time. And the, the interaction that you need as an editor across, you know, it, 
you know, when you hit stop and edit and, and advanced frame, you want it, it has to be, you know, oh, it's gotta be very, time, very interactive. It's gotta but, but if you, if you have some frames cached and you're doing rotoscoping or doing compositing, you know, it's not as crucial that you're not looking for like this, like real time button to screen kind of interaction. So I think a lot of the work actually did translate pretty well to the VM system. So it's definitely a reality, you know, it's, uh, you know, a lot of these, we talked to many customers who say, we're not going back, you know, now they've proven the security issues that they were always so concerned about, you know, they've, they've proved they can kind of, uh, work contain, contain and their artists can work from home. And, um, so yeah, you know, it's obviously every different company and different workflows different, but, uh, yeah, the certainly happening. Home. Yeah, that whole situation is really interesting. I know a lot of people that are like, "Oh, I don't want to go back. I don't. I don't want to. You know, I'm. I'm, I'm not going like back." This. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I so so, I will come back to me in five years. Sure, mm -hmm. come back to me in five years because you know I've I've been doing it for a long time and just recently went back into a studio, and there's a few things that I think there's like this like almost like a a, a newlywed uh, phase that everybody's in with it right now. Where it's like, oh, this is great. You know, I can, I can just you know go for a walk. I can play with the dog or whatever. And what I found is that there's a there's one major thing that just hasn't been addressed that nobody's really talking about, which is this idea of new talent. How mm -hmm. do you bring up new talent? How do you how do you intern? How does an intern work in a fully oh. remote environment? How do they learn? How do you train them? How do you bring up that new crop of? People? How do you shadow someone? Exactly. Sure. Exactly. And and I'm dealing with that now. That's one of the reasons I got the studios. I, I have uh, a new employee that I've been training, and I can tell you right now, his he, he has accelerated so much faster since we've been in the same space than mm. I had been mentoring him for a, well, close to a year before that, and it's been exponential. I got to tell you. And so a lot of these companies, I think, are just in this phase where they think that their workflow and everything is as it is right now, like a freeze frame. Like, oh, it's great. We love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But nobody's thinking about this like future place. And I'm sure they'll solve it somehow. But it is something that I think people need to think about a little bit. Totally valid. VR. Like, I, I've been <laughs> I've been remote for uh, God, I've been remote for almost 15 years now at this point. So it's not, uh, it's not new to me. And I've been, we've used over the time I've used um, every different kind of screen sharing and chatting and, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, solution there has been. So, but I, I certainly miss, I miss travel. I miss, I miss, uh, you know, the human interaction greatly, you know, so, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing people in person. That's why I was sad about NAB. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. I wanted to go to NAB. Um, uh, there's definitely something to be said about that in-person interaction. Um, I come in once a week normally, um, and there's just so such a better um, just conversation, idea, ide ideation, right? Like you can have those some some cool idea pops into your head while you're just kind of shooting the breeze or or, or kicking some ideas around that I don't get when I'm at home, just focused on kind of like my daily tasks. Uh, and I, I think that kind of helps to support your point, Chad, where that in-person work is is much quicker. You can you can just work faster almost, or, yeah. or at least some of the more creative parts of things is, is a lot easier. Well, I think timelines have to 
in some ways, I think a lot of people thought that um, timelines were going to somehow get accelerated in a remote environment. And in a lot of ways they do, but in, in some ways they need to expand because now if you're having to give feedback in more of an asynchronous way, uh, a lot more writing, a lot more spending time pouring over uh, notes and, and, and making them digestible in written form, that takes more time than just walking over to somebody's desk and saying, hey, can you try this? Or maybe we do exactly. that. And that, yeah. th that takes a little bit more time. Now, that time you could say is a wash because they don't have to commute and all of the other benefits of, of work from home. But I do think, um, a I think a hybrid approach is best in my mm -hmm. opinion. I think, you know, a few days in, a few days out uh, is a good idea. And the more, uh, if you are fully remote and a company that is distributed maybe across multiple time zones, I can't stress this enough. The company needs to have a retreat, a regular times where everybody gets together and like talks and sees each other. And uh, I don't know if you guys use Slack internally, if you use yeah. Teams or, or whatever, but Slack has actually uh, come up with some really interesting ways of dealing with remote uh, work, which is the two features that I'm really excited about that we use all the time now is this huddle uh, feature. I don't know if you guys have used this yet, but it's essentially a quick voice chat that you can just jump into this huddle. It doesn't require to have a camera on. You don't have to be, you know, fully dressed <laughs> or whatever. But it's a really easy way to like quickly get somebody and jump into this huddle and a ask a question, get an answer. And then the other feature that they just rolled out is this idea of um, screen recording. So you can do like a really quick yeah. screen recording in the app. So you can say, hey, I'm, th I'm trying this thing. It's not working. Here's what I'm doing. And that kind of stuff is awesome, but nothing really beats, I think, that, that, that in person, because what Slack doesn't do is, is it doesn't really convey emotion. And as you work in a fully remote company dealing with human beings that are human, it's important that we connect as humans and really yes. understand each other. And sometimes, you know, I know in, in a lot of cases, uh, when you're dealing with a, a, a high pressure and production environment, Slack is a terrible place to communicate because you can't really tell tone. Like you can't mm -hmm. see the face. You're like, is this person mad? Are they, uh, you know, upset? Like, wh how, should, how do I react to this? So, so all stuff yeah. I think about. Yeah, we use uh, Slack and Zoom, and I find myself more and more, like a lot of the stuff that you mentioned, like the screen recording on Slack, I've been using that quite a bit recently. Uh, but man, so often if I'm talking to someone for more than like four or five back and forths, I just say, let's hop on Zoom. <laughs> and I just, yeah. It's just slash Zoom and it makes a meeting and then boom, we go there. It's one of the reasons why we got webcams for all of our remote people. Like, just yeah. here's a webcam. Like, I mean, if you're not comfortable using it, you know, whatever. Uh, but it just... I feel like it helps so much once you've gone a little bit too deep, just start up a zoom thing. It doesn't have to be a long call, but then you can do screen sharing. You can do, uh, I like one of the things that I really like with uh, zoom with, I think a lot of them do this now is annotation. So if someone's sharing a screen, mm -hmm. you can draw on their screen and you know, yeah, hey, I you love that this or that. Oh, it's so nice. And in some ways that's better than being in person because in person you're just kind of like pointing or, or whatever um, this, you can actually kind of draw what you mean. Uh, yeah. But yeah, definitely in person is the best for those kind of things. But as long as you're willing to embrace the tools, there are things there that can offset, I, I feel, some of that. Yeah, I, I I do love that drawing feature in Slack, too. And in person, what I've done to kind of mimic that is I'll, 
I'll tell um, I'll tell someone to like slack me that image and I'll open it up on my iPad Pro and then I can like draw on it and annotate on it and it just like helps me I think more than it probably helps them. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah right. We are way over time, aren't we? Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I, that's I, just I, my I, fault. I I'm so sorry, guys. We have to no, do this cool. again. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say we should wrap it up here with that. Um, thank you, thank you all for joining us today. Um, and as always, uh, thank you to the audience as well. Uh, this was really cool. I, I got I always I love being able to do this because I learn quite a lot and I get to to see more than I would otherwise. So I appreciate it a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Fun. Right on. And uh, do stay tuned for the audience as well. We're coming back at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We're doing, uh, I think this one is AI for post-production. Matt and I will be back with that with uh, Nico from Corridor and uh, Jeff Greenberg. Uh, And uh, yeah, that one's going to be pretty cool too because there have been a lot of cool advances in AI and things like that. So stay tuned. 1 p.m. today, uh, Pacific time. And also through the rest of the week, we have a lot of great content for our 2021 live stream extravaganza. And um, we'll see you all next time. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Ed.